You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. In case we have not met, my name is Lee White, and I'm the director of student ministries here. And so my wife, Amy, and I, we've been here for about six weeks. Uh, and just this week, we've been so blessed by the way in which uh, just the church has, has come around and supported us. We were able to move into our house this week. Uh, we had about 15 or 20 people over there helping us do that. Uh, also, the way in which you guys have brought us meals and other things, we just feel blessed and loved by you guys. I wanted to encourage you with that. And we're going to be answering some questions this morning. Uh, they kind of center around this thought of why are we here? And you might be saying, hey, why is he here? Uh, one of the reasons I'm here right now, Pastor Jeff and his family are on vacation. Much needed rest for them to get away and visit family. But we will be looking into reasons why certain things are here. And as we get started with that, uh, there's some humorous ones that I think of uh, quite often, actually, as I'm going around in life. And you might be asking, why are certain things there? Uh, one of those for me is the braille on the ATMs or the drive throughs as you're going through. It's one of those things where it's like, I'm not really sure if that's safe, not really sure why that's there. Uh, another thing that you might be asking, why is it here? Uh, locks on places that never close, like 24-hour gas stations that are open 365 days a year. Why do you walk past locks on those doors? Uh, another one that I always wonder why it comes back, actually, is if the McRib is so good that people want it to come back all the time, why does it ever leave in the first place, right? Uh, there are actual answers to those questions. Um, there's a lot of other things that you can look into in terms of reasons that people might say they're there, but there's really just one answer for each of those questions. And as we focus on something maybe a little bit of more substance, uh, I want to introduce maybe or uh, remind you guys of something called the Nazca Lines that are in Peru. I'm going to have the guys throw some pictures up here on the Nazca Lines. And so these are geoliths or etchings that are in the ground in the desert of southern Peru. And for years, people have tried to figure out, why are these there? Why are they there? Because they're dated between somewhere between 500 BC and 500 AD, and part of a civilization that was wiped out by a flood around 750 AD. So all of the people who were there and could answer that question are gone. But people have wondered what they are. Why are they there? They've given astrological, agricultural, chronological reasons for all these. But as they keep looking into them, people are like, no, it actually doesn't make sense the way you've explained it. That's actually not why they're there. But then we're left with the question of why would people in a primitive society spend so much time creating these things in the desert? Most of them are only visible as you get up into the air or up into hills and mountains around them. So a primitive culture is putting these things there, seemingly wasting their time as they have no purpose that anyone could find. Well, as they've looked into and started to study the actual pictures and what they are, many of them have actually been tied to the thought of rain or water. And so what they have now decided is that they put these pictures in as offerings to what they thought were the rain gods, the ones who brought them the water that they need. The majority of the birds that they find are only from the Amazon jungle, which is nearby, or from the coastal areas. 
They're harbingers of when the waters and the rains come into that area. And so they found now the reason that these people did this. They did this because they felt like it was an offering, a way of telling the world or the telling their gods that they needed that water that would give them that life. So you see, when we look into the reason that we find something or the reason that something exists, it opens our eyes to the realities of why it's in our lives. And so today, we're going to do that with a very small book of the Bible, Philemon. And so we sometimes come to certain areas of our Bible that we say, hey, why is this here? Why do we have this? Why this instead of something else? And so as we ask this today, we might be asking, what value does this book add to Scripture? Why is it part of the 66 books that we have? And so I'll invite you to turn to the book of Philemon, and we're going to read through the entire letter today. And as you're turning there, I want to lay the foundation of the fact that the big idea for this book is that the Christian life calls us to a radically different standard of living. And what I mean by that is that the Christian life is one of a radically transformed life that leads us to lay aside all of our rights, all of our privileges, all of our desires, everything that encompasses who we are for the sake of the gospel. And for the sake of the continuing spread of the gospel, we must daily live in light of the gospel and what it means in our lives. And so we're going to see how this plays out in this book today, and we'll examine it through two main lenses. But first, we're going to read the text in its entirety. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have had towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So we'll examine this text now through two lenses. The first one is we're going to give a rundown of Philemon. What's going on? Who are these people? How are we getting to this place? Because we're introduced to this letter of a story that's going on, an actual historical event, a piece that is in, uh, given to us just in a small glimpse. And so we need to understand what's going on. And they're going to do this rundown through the principal characters that we see. And so the first character that we see is Paul. And Paul is one that we're all pretty familiar with if we've been in the church uh, for a long time. We understand that Paul is the once Saul, who is a great Pharisee and great persecutor of Christians, who was miraculously transformed on the road to Damascus as he sought to imprison and to beat and, and uh, to reach out against the spread of Christianity. And so Paul, at this point, has been radically transformed. He's been equipped, he's been empowered, he's been commissioned as a missionary, a church planner, and a great leader of the church. And as he expands his ministry throughout, uh, throughout the known world at the time, that caught the eyes of the authorities, who have decided at this point that he is not able to be moving about freely. So he's imprisoned, most likely in Rome at this time. Now, Paul understands that the gospel has radically transformed his life and has called him to a different standard of living. So he has adapted his ministry to be such that he is now sending letters through the different fellow workers that he has to encourage the churches and to provide the leadership that he would wish to provide in person through the only means left that he has. And so Colossians 4.7 tells us that Tychicus most likely delivers this letter of Philemon alongside the letter of Colossians to the church in Colossae, a church that Paul has never been to. But Paul, for a special reason, is writing to both of these churches. But this letter is not like the other letters that we have from Paul. It's a specific letter to an individual who has not been named other places in the scriptures. It's a specific small letter, yet its purpose or its place in the Bible was never questioned as it was put into the 66 books that we have. So there's something unique about this letter. We undoubtedly know that Paul wrote many other personal letters of which we do not have in our scriptures. So why this letter? Why this specific one that we have this morning? Second, we have our person Philemon, who we've named this letter after. We don't know a ton about Philemon, but we do know that he's come across Paul previously, that he was brought to faith through Paul's ministry. Most likely that was in Ephesus. Philemon was a wealthy business person, was able to move about freely, and moved about to different places for which he would meet people. As he spread his trades and met Paul, he comes back to his home in Colossae and starts a church. As he's starting that church, he gives of it freely, he supports it, he encourages the saints in the many things that we hear Paul speak of to him. We also see that most likely the people who are mentioned in verse 2 of Phia and Archippus are a part of his family because this is dealing with a familial matter. 
This letter would be written to Philemon as the head of his household, but it would also deal with Aphia, who is believed to be his wife, and Archippus, who is believed to be his son. Colossians 4.17 tells us a little bit more about Archippus. It's believed that he is actually the leader of the church that is in Philemon's home. He's given the charge of Paul to see to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And so Paul is writing to Philemon. Philemon, this wealthy business person who has a church who meets in his home, who has done great things for the cause of Christ. He's expanded the gospel. He's encouraged and refreshed the saints. And he's allowed the church to flourish there in Colossae. And so as he goes through this, we also are introduced to something that we would see as a character flaw in Philemon, and that is his ownership of slaves. We have to first understand that this was something that was very common at the time. As a wealthy business person in this empire, owning slaves would not have been something that had been spoken out upon. We know that at this point in time, most of these slaves were brought in from conquered lands. Many of them had specific talents or they had wealth of knowledge that they would be brought into. It was not slavery for the purpose of uh, brute strength or agriculture, like we might think of it in our American context. But these slaves were considered to be very valuable because of the knowledge and abilities that they possessed from these different lands. And so the slave will be introduced to is believed to be one of these types of individuals. While they would have been treated better than what we might think a slave might be treated as, they still lived a life of slavery. They were treated as property. They had few, if any, rights, and they could not account for themselves, nor could they argue or do anything on their own behalf without their masters allowing that to take place. And so we see that there is a conflict between this Philemon and his slave Onesimus, which is our third character. He's Philemon's slave, and past that we know very little about him. We know that he's come to faith under the ministry of Paul. And I'm going to ask the guys to throw a picture up here of a map of the world at this time. We have Ephesus down here in the corner. Around there, we have over here Rome. And so as he goes from Colossae, which would be down there by Ephesus, walking all the way over to Rome, it would have been some 1,300 miles Now, you might say, hey, why didn't he just hop on the boat? I just told you he was a slave. He has no money. He has nothing. He's not going to be able to get there that way. So he's going to have to take the long way to get to Rome. Most people say he's going to Rome trying to escape what's happening in uh, his home. Uh, But I would caution us from taking too much time on trying to solve the events of what's happening with Onesimus and why he's fleeing. And why I believe that is a lot of times when I come to the scriptures and I have a question that I'm trying to figure out and I'm digging for these answers and working through that, I think in the context of my Western mind. I want to think in that context because that's the context that I know. And I want to answer questions that were not important to the text. The main reading for this passage would have been easily understood to its original audience as well as us. And so we have to focus on what the passage is telling us, what it's displaying, and inside that we find the truth of what's happening. So all we want to know about Onesimus is he's a slave who's left his master. He's gone either for fleeing or gone for the sake of trying to find somebody to argue on his behalf for some wrong that has taken place. Maybe he has broken something. Maybe he has stolen something. Maybe he has done all sorts of those things. But the text is silent on those. 
We have very, other tradi- very few other traditions that add anything to what could be going on in Onesimus' life. So we want to understand that instead the providence of God brought these three people together into a situation for which we are able to learn from what's taking place as God works through this messy situation using his servants to bring about this reconciliation. That brings us to our second point this morning, which is the reason for Philemon. The reason for Philemon. What is it about these 335 words in the original Greek scriptures that necessitate their inclusion in our Bible? What we see here is a real life in-home example of what the radical transformation of a Christian life looks like. We see here how the book displays the practical implications of the gospel as lived out within a home, as lived out within the fellowship of believers for the commonality of the gospel. And so we're going to see that through three gospel-centered focuses this morning. The first of those is the ministry of reconciliation. What we have in the ministry of reconciliation is basically a portrait of what Paul is doing here. Paul steps into this situation for which he would not have to had it not been for the sake of the gospel. But the ministry of reconciliation is something that Paul has spoken of previously in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling himself to the world, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what Paul is displaying here is that he knows that his standing with God is, is, is tied intrinsically to his standing with the others around him. And so as Paul seeks to live his life according to what God has called him to do, it makes it so that he has to entangle himself with the people around him for the sake of the gospel. That bond that's between God and the people around him, especially those believers we call fellowship. Paul here calls it partnership. Those two words are interchangeable in his mind. But what happens in this bond or this partnership is a mutual service and sacrifice for one another. And so what Paul is going to argue and what Paul is going to build his foundation for his reason of writing this is upon the partnership that Philemon has entered into as he became a believer. And so Philemon, as a believer, participates in the fellowship with the believers in his church that are drawing them together to their partnership with God. And so it will be that basis for which he argues that Onesimus must be brought back into faith, brought back into the home, into this same partnership with no barriers there. So when I was growing up, when I thought of fellowship or things like that, I went to church and you went to a fellowship, a fellowship that usually had a potluck, right? So maybe that's just the context of me with fellowship, but fellowship had a very surface level meaning of fellowship means we're going to eat together. 
And so while there are facets and aspects of those coming together, bringing, sharing, spreading those things out over, the fellowship that he speaks of is so much deeper than that. We get a great picture of the centrality of the gospel in fellowship when we look at 1 John 1. As John opens that letter, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the fellowship that that speaks of is the mutual sharing of the gospel and living of the gospel in partnership. It carries the horizontal aspect of the people around us, but it ties our fellowship centrally to God. And so Paul has been reconciled to God himself and now understands that God has called him to be a minister of reconciliation, which means that he's reconciling the people in the horizontal relationships to one another as well as reconciling people to God because that's all part of building the partnership or the fellowship of the believers for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's appeal to Philemon is this. If Philemon considers himself to be a brother to Paul, he now must understand he is a brother to Onesimus. The same forgiveness that has been offered to each of them by God must be extended to each member of God's family. And while Paul never makes a direct demand for Philemon to forgive Onesimus in the letter, he does say this in the accompanying letter of Colossians. Verses, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 say, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see, our reconciliation to God demands that we live in right relationship with the people around us. While we're imperfect and we're unable to do so, except for the grace of God working in our lives, we're to embody the mind of Christ in extending unconditional forgiveness to those who are around us. And it's something that's, that's very hard for us to do. It's easy to say you can forgive everyone, but to not carry grudges, to truly forgive, to truly extend unfor- unconditional forgiveness is very difficult. So much so, we're often reminded of the people that we see in parables or other places in Scripture. If you go to Matthew 18, you can see there the parable of the unforgiving servant, the person who is given much grace and his his own uh, shortcomings are given away as forgiven. But then he demands justice and payment from others to the point that he sends people to jail. When they tell his master of what's taken place, his master's words are these, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? You see, when we attempt to uphold our rights, our privileges, our desires, and when we build those up and we demand that we get what we deserve, we throw out the grace that we ourselves stand upon. 
You know, I remember as a kid, I was, uh, grew up in Lee Summit, and that was the first house that I really had chores at that I remember. I may have had smaller things that I did before that point, but in fourth or fifth grade, I started to be given the, the chore of mowing the lawn. Uh, and so it was pretty cool for the first couple times because we got a riding lawnmower. We lived on an acre. Uh, so I felt like it was Mario Kart out there. Like, how fast can I get this done? Screaming around the turns, doing all those different things. And on top of that, I got a, I got a bonus that nobody else got because they weren't mowing the lawn. So I got $5. So 1990s, kid that can't get a job anywhere else, that was pretty good money, 5 bucks, right? And so as I'm working through that, mowing the lawn for 5 bucks. Got all these other rules that got put on that, okay? Like I had to slow down, had to do different things. The front part of our house, it was visible from a cul-de-sac, and so I couldn't use the riding mower up there. I had to use a push mower. I had to make a pattern, like all those different things, right? So the chore was kind of getting burdensome, things like that. Fourth grade all the way through 12th grade, the pay rate was still five bucks, okay? (laughs) Five bucks all the way through, right? So five bucks to mow the lawn. Weeks that I wanted to go to the movies, I'd try to mow the lawn twice, so I'd get $10, and that'd be almost half of my ticket or whatever, right? So I'd work through all those different things, and so all that way, all the way through, my job was to mow the lawn. I have two brothers. They didn't really mow the lawn. wasn't really their chore, um, and so I moved off to college. My parents moved into a new house, had a much smaller lawn, and I uh, came back from college sometime, and my little brother was mowing the lawn, and I found out that he made $25, for mowing the lawn. And it took him about 15 minutes, where I was in the hour, hour and a half range. And so you can imagine the outrage at the injustice that had been done to me for so many years of holding back my wages, right? Uh, And so I went to my dad and I said something, and I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but it was something to the extent of If you would like to get our accounts back to zero, I would like to bring forward the following charges. 18 years of room and board, travel expenses, vacation expenses, sports fees, school fees, all of these types of things we can bring to the table if you would like to get our accounts back to what we deserve and what is equal. And so I realized at that point that was probably not in my favor to gain $20 for each time that I had mowed the lawn. Because you see, when we get or when we make demands about what we actually deserve, we kick the grace out that we've been extended. We see, we understand that we've been given grace. But when we make demands upon others who have been given that same grace, what we're really saying is that the grace that we have is unconditional, but the grace that we extend is conditional. And you see, that is not what the gospel says. Martin Luther says it this way, For Christ laid aside his rights and overcame his father with love and humility, so that he had to put away his wrath and his rights and receive us into favor. For Christ's sake, who earnestly advocates our cause and takes our part so tenderly. If we have an advocate who is interceding on our behalf for the undeserved grace that we have, why are we demanding our rights and our privileges from others when we're called to extend that same grace to others? But you see, that's so hard to do because we don't want to do it. When we find places that we feel like we deserve something, we want to rest there. We want to camp there. We want to make our claim over that land and say, give us what we deserve. 
But the fact is we don't want what we deserve. We want the gospel. We want the all-knowing, ever-loving, all-powerful God who knows everything about us yet chooses to unconditionally forgive us. We want that, and we need that. But if we want that, and we need that, and we know that, we must extend that to others around us. And that's what Paul is telling Philemon here. You say you've participated in the gospel. You say you've accepted the grace of that gospel. So now see this man as your brother who has done the same. And it's not just that that reconciliation is happening, but it also accompanies a mindset of restoration. And this mindset of restoration is, is something that, that expands and builds back into the importance of why this letter is here. And so I'm always amazed at how people can restore things, whether they be antiques or just things that people have set aside and they haven't used. Uh, I like watching the process of those coming back into fruition, being brought back to usefulness, uh, but I'm just not very good at that. Uh, I'm more of a hoarder than like a fixer of things. And so I gather those things and then other people show me how to put them back into order. But I'm always amazed at how you can take something that's broken, fix it, give it back into its usefulness. And I wish I had a better eye for what that looks like or a better ability to do those things, but I don't. But what Paul understands is that restoration that we're thinking of in that terms is the same with people. And so he extends this mindset of restoration to Onesimus. And when we look at Onesimus, his name ironically means useful. So you have a slave who's called useful, and that would be the slave that you want, right? Somebody who's useful. Names are really important in the Bible. They tell us a lot about what people are are doing or parts of their life. And so we have this slave whose name is useful, who has become useless, And so several times in this letter, Paul does this play on words with the names useful and useless. And as he works through that, he's really pointing Onesimus and building him back into the proper light in the mind of Philemon. He wants to remind him of how good he was in his home, how useful he was. He wants to remind him of how useful he's been to Paul in his imprisonment. And he says he's so useful for this. He wants to build him back up and remind him of what's there, which tells us that right now Philemon probably is not really high on Onesimus. He needs to build him back up in his mind. So as he says, he was once useless to you. Now he is useful, not just to you, but to me as well. And I'm sending you the most useful thing I have back because I didn't want to keep it on your behalf without you being a part of that process. And so he knows that is demanded of the gospel for him to send this slave back to his master. He also knows that Onesimus, in going back, is called to be returned to not just his state as a slave, but his state as a brother. And so whether he's this runaway slave or he's this person who's gone to Paul to argue on his behalf, he's coming into the home again and needs to be restored to a proper place. I think it's important at this point that we talk about the fact that Paul does not call for his emancipation, the manumission, or the abolition of slavery in this letter. Let's remember for a moment, even if that would be what he would want to do and want to call him for, he's imprisoned and writing writing against the laws of the land, writing against those things, would have put him in a very precarious position, as probably everything that he wrote and everything that came back to him was probably read by others. Because as a prisoner, his state is very similar to a slave. 
He's under others' authority and can only do what they allow him to do. So Paul places himself and focuses so much on his imprisonment and the slavery of Onesimus to show the commonalities that the two men have. They're dependent upon others in their life to do the right thing and to make the right choices, to allow them to benefit and to allow them to live in what they're called to do. And it's not just that. Because when we look back in the text, he actually shows how what's taken place for a very small time has a much greater ability to take about changes. When we look back in verses 15 and 16, what we see there is it says, For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." What he literally says here is he says he's been gone for an hour so that he can have an eternity. He places those temporal words in his mind. We think about an hour being a small amount of time. We might say a second or a minute is more insignificant, but really an hour when it's compared with eternity is a huge chasm. There's a great difference between the two. So he says, could you allow him to be gone from you for an hour? Which sure is inconvenient. Sure, it's not what he would wanted. Sure, he would want him to be serving and doing what he'd been called to do. But will you allow that hour to pass so that an eternity of blessing can be laid out? Not just for Onesimus in his salvation, but he also says for you. He says, especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon? Are you blessed by the rewards of the eternity that this man now has in his life? The momentary light affliction that Philemon endured for Onesimus being gone paled in comparison to the eternal glories that both Onesimus and Philemon benefited from as he came to faith in that time. But I ask you this question, how many insignificant things are the saints of the church holding on to which have placed greater hindrances to eternal realities? How many insignificant things do we allow to build up barriers in our homes, in our workplaces, within the church, in our community that have created barriers for eternal realities to take place? Do we live like we understand that how we treat one another, how we live in fellowship with one another, how we live in partnership with one another has eternal ramifications for the people that are around us? 2 Corinthians 2 reminds us that our lives are either pointing others to Christ or to death. Paul understood that. He understood that and he wrote for this reason. And these are truly sobering thoughts because we must look to the grace of God to permeate our lives and to cover all of our weaknesses and to do what only God can do in our life as the Holy Spirit takes over control and makes it so that we die to ourselves and we live for others, something that is so hard to do because it goes against everything that we're surrounded by. It goes against everything that we've been created and thought to be by our culture that we possess the power to do the things that we do, that we have rights, that we have privileges, that our desires must be taken a hold of by ourselves. But Paul has built all of this up 
work through all of these things before he actually makes his request. His request comes in the form of four imperatives. They're very small, they're very short, and they're at the very end of what he's writing. He has some four things. He says, first, welcome him as you would welcome me. Easy to say, hard for Philemon to do. If Paul was to walk through the door of Philemon's house, imagine how excited Philemon would be to see him again. Imagine what he would say to say, Paul could be anywhere else in the world doing anything else, and he has chosen to come here to my home. Welcome him as you would welcome me. He then says, second, charge me like you would charge him. Charge me like you would charge him. Undoubtedly, he's been gone for 2,600 miles. So he's been gone for a while, right? You walk a marathon a day, you can do the math. That's a long time, right? Roughly 100 days if he could walk a marathon a day and just walk there and straight back. Okay, so that's a long time, 100 days. He owes him that work that he's missed for those 100 days. Some people think that he's taken money, he's taken other things, he broke things, that's why he fled. Whatever it is, he owes a lot. Now, he's traveled on his own expense, probably doing the best that he can to get all the way there and all the way back. Guess what? He's still a slave. It's not like he got to stop by a bank and take out some money to pay back what he owes. He owes a lot, and Paul knows that. And he says, charge it to me. If it's so much so that it's taken such a hardship upon you that it needs to be paid back by somebody, I'll pay it back. Charge him as you would charge me. The third imperative I find to be the most convincing of all of these. He says, refresh my heart as you've refreshed others. His appeal goes back to the partnership of the gospel. He says, I know you've done so much for the sake of the gospel. You've refreshed the hearts of the saints. You're hosting a church in your home. You're doing all these things. You're lavishly pouring out things, pouring out your life, making sacrifices, doing all these things for the sake of the church. That brings about this refreshment of their hearts. He says, I want you to do the same thing for me. And, you know, it's important for us to understand the word that he uses for heart here. It's not cardia, the word that we think of the most time in the Greek for heart. He actually uses this term that talks about the bowels. And he says, refresh me from the bowels of within me. And it's the same way that he used the word for Philemon in verse 7. He says, bring me that same refreshment that you've brought to the saints. Do for me what you've done to so many others by welcoming him back into your home. And lastly, he says, get a room ready for me. I want to come and I want to see the gospel display on in your home. I want to see what that looks like as the glory of God is made much in your home, as you welcome Onesimus back. And I want us to take a moment and imagine what this scene looks like in his home. Because we have Philemon hosting this church. We have this letter coming back with Tychicus, but we also have Onesimus coming back with Tychicus. And while we don't know what happened, and we don't know exactly what's going on, guess who did? All the people in that church. He's been gone for some time. Undoubtedly, people have spoken about his absence. Whether it's gossip, whether it's truth, they've spread the news of why Onesimus is gone. 
So Tychicus comes back. They're excited to see Tychicus. They hear he's got a letter from Paul. They're ready to hear the specific letter that's written to them. They've undoubtedly read other letters that were written to other communities that God has used in their midst to grow the gospel, to allow people to be transformed, and to allow the gospel to spread. But this one's special. It's written specifically to them. And as they walk in to hear this word that Paul has from the Lord for them, they also find out that Philemon has this other letter. And so Philemon starts to read this letter as they start to see Onesimus come inside. And we think about this, right? There's those people, they just love that drama. They see Onesimus coming in, they're like, it's about to go down. Onesimus is here. Philemon's going to call him to the table. He's going to get that justice that he deserves, right? But that's not what happens. And we know that's not what happens because we have Philemon in our Bible. If Philemon demanded what Onesimus deserved, this book wouldn't be here because it wouldn't be a display of the gospel. But its inclusion in here suggests that the transformation that's taken place in Onesimus's life and the way in which the gospel worked in Philemon's heart allowed him to, instead of demanding justice, to extend that unconditional forgiveness that was called to for him. Now imagine that church sitting there, right? Jaws dropped, eyes wide, as they see Philemon possibly hugging Onesimus. Whatever it looked like, whatever that first embrace of design of that partnership was, instead of giving him what he deserved, he gave him the grace he'd been extended. And that's the gospel on display in a super messy situation, in a place that Paul undoubtedly didn't want to get involved with a master and a slave. Why put yourself in between those two people? Why do that? Because the gospel. Because the gospel calls us to radical transformation and a radically different standard of living. It calls us to set aside our rights, to set aside our privileges, to set aside our liberties for its sake and the glory of God. And what we have here is Onesimus forgiven. We have Onesimus forgiven because Paul sees that that is what his place is to do. And because Philemon sees that he's been extended unconditional forgiveness and is called to extend that to others too. But that doesn't mean it was easy. I'll ask the guys to put this quote up here too. The times when you least feel like extending forgiveness, Christian, are the times when you most need to forgive. Because that's when the gospel shines brightest. When we see the depths of the undeserved nature of the forgiveness that it's extended, it goes beyond what we can explain because we see it in real life how it's transformed, how it's changed, and how it moves forward. But there's one more area we'll look at quickly here. It's the mission of reproduction. Paul had this mission or mindset of reproduction that he took on. If you've been around church, we've even mentioned it this morning here at Ascend. We say that the mission of our church is to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied for the glory of God. And Paul shares that mindset here. 
He uses different words. He uses different terminology as he talks about it. But his main focus here is the multiplication, the spread of the gospel. You see, he spread the gospel into Philemon's life. He spread the gospel into Onesimus's life. And he wants to continue to spread the gospel through the church that's in Philemon's home. He says, we're going to do this. We're going to put the gospel on display. We're going to allow it to be extending beyond what we can imagine. And so he uses the terminology of father and son, child. We think of it in parents and their children, right? We often hear of the strange occurrences of strength that take place when a mother needs to rescue a child, lifting cars off of things, hear of men and women running back into burning houses to get their children out of there. Extreme shows of love for their children. Paul displays that here as well. He's willing to do whatever it takes for his children in the gospel. Not just to bring them to faith, but to continue them in that process of maturation. To say the hard things, to do the hard things in people's lives, to challenge them to grow according to the gospel. And you know, he really didn't need to do what he did. If Onesimus stayed in Rome, Paul would have known. But would Philemon have ever found out? Maybe not. But he knew that the sake of the gospel called him to do what was right. He could not have his conscience soothed by keeping him from his master. He knew that he had to do that. He knew that for the gospel to continue to expand, they had to live in obedience to the gospel commands. You know, I recently read a story about uh, there's a huge problem. There's lots of problems in our world. This one kind of seems insignificant in the terms of everything else that's going on. But there's a huge mouse problem in Australia, uh, which I find to be baffling because they have like the biggest snakes and spiders and all those different things, right? But there's this huge mouse problem in Australia And they're expanding and spreading so much that they're destroying crops, making it so that it's unlivable for farmers, right? And so Australia is trying to figure out what they want to do. Uh, It's been put out by some people that they should uh, take this banned chemical that some people have termed as mouse napalm. And they need to take that chemical and just spread it back over the land. Get them back to ground zero so that they can start over again. And the problem is two mice in one year can turn to 1.5 million mice. Two adult mice in one year, 1.5 million mice, right? It's crazy. It's it's insane, right? That's reproduction, right? (laughs) Um, But do we understand that the gospel reproduction has that same power? Because it's not just Paul who's making these new converts and walking through all these things. Each of us are called to be a part of that ministry. Each of us are called to be a part of that process of discipleship, calling and bringing people to faith, allowing them to process through maturation to the point that they themselves are multiplying in other places. Paul writes this letter for that purpose because the seeds of the gospel are being sowed throughout it. For Paul in his own life, the seeds of the gospel, understanding the power that the transformation can take place, that's something big for him to trust in. He's stepping out on a ledge here to say, Philemon, I'm hoping, I'm trusting the power of God is active in your life as you receive this letter and do what's right. For Philemon, it's also seeds of the gospel being sown. Will he allow himself to die to himself to live the gospel for Onesimus' sake? Will Onesimus do that? Paul lets Onesimus go, right? Says, go back to Colossae. Guess what? He doesn't have to go back there. 
Paul can't walk his hand all the way back the 1,300 miles. He has to go back of his own volition. The seeds of the gospel are being sown every step of the way as he walks back there trusting. Will he forgive me? Will he accept me back? Think of the picture that that is for his faith with God. Each step of the way saying, will he trust me? Will he forgive me? Will he actually consider me useful once again? The seeds of the gospel are radically being sown in these people's lives, as well as in the life of that church who's going to watch this whole thing take place for the purpose of the reproduction of the saints, for expanding the gospel, for changing lives, for bringing about the transformation that's there in the gospel. So where do we go from here? I'm going to ask you guys to just bow your heads for a second. Just think about yourself. The first place that you might come to as we think about this text is maybe you identify with one of these people. Maybe you identify with Paul and you have people in your life that are being called to restoration. They're being called to reconciliation. And you're at a place where you realize that God's put you in that spot for such a time as this. What is it that God is calling you to do on behalf of the believers that you live in partnership with? How can you respond to the gospel in your life, to the spirit that is prompting you to move in its midst? What does it look like for you as somebody who's maybe been wronged by others? Maybe you see yourself like Philemon. You see that others have wronged you. You see that you're habitually under. Maybe it's a boss who is not the right, treating you the right way. Maybe it's someone else in your life who's habitually wronging you. What does it look like for you to, con- to continue to live in unconditional forgiveness towards that person for the sake of the gospel? Maybe you're like Onesimus. Maybe the gospel is calling you to do something that you don't want to do. It's calling you to lay down your rights, your privileges. Maybe it's calling you to go step into something that you know will be a hardship. Maybe it's calling you to just for the first time extend your eyes to God and to ask for that forgiveness that you know you could never pay for in yourself. What is the gospel calling you to do? It's my prayer that we would be responsive to that in this time.